Hello and welcome to another episode of the Able to Care podcast. Uh, my name is Andy Baker. I am head trainer and managing director of Able Training Support Limited. Um, I've been working in the care sector for quite a significant number of years now, uh, specialising in understanding complex behaviours and supporting individuals in care. And this is my co-host. Hi, I'm Nadine. I've been a trainer now for nearly two years with Able and previous to that I was in the care sector for just over eight years. Perfect. So uh, today we're going to be talking about um, dementia, um, but specifically around one area of understanding dementia, and that's dementia in the senses. So I know we've done some previous episodes on on dementia. We did one that was focused on the kind of the memory side of things. Um, we've done a few around kind of the Christmas and care and things like that. So but we wanted to do um, uh, a few episodes around understanding uh, difficulties with sensory needs. And uh, Nadine does a lot of work with with a major um, Alzheimer's charity, um, delivering training on their behalf, and it's a big thing that seems to, a lot of people don't seem to understand or know about dementia. I think, as we say, most people it starts off kind of dementia. Immediate thing is memory loss, and that tends to be where a lot of people's knowledge kind of finishes as far as what they think dementia is. Um, if we just kind of cover what is dementia to start off with, and then we can go into a little bit on how how the sensory aspects do you want to kind of how would how would you define dementia what dementia actually is obviously it's a it's used to describe a set of symptoms so usually when there's something wrong or, or if you're in those earlier stages um of, of things change and it's usually things like memory thought perception thought processing perception and communication yeah. so this can happen across a group of diseases so there's around about 150 different forms of dementia so yeah. if you just imagine dementia kind of being the label the, mm -hmm. the like the top label to describe those sets of symptoms but then you have 150 diseases that come underneath it so the diseases are forms of dementia and dementia is just the umbrella term yeah and obviously most people have heard of alzheimer's disease which is the the most well known and also the most common of those it but, is yeah but obviously said that there's 150 and we won't we won't spend our time listing them off because no, no, that'd be a very not. long podcast and and 999 is <laughs> so the thing is even with alzheimer's disease there's like subtypes of yeah. alzheimer's disease so there's just so many there's over 200 subtypes of yeah. of different forms of dementia so yeah there's just a lot yeah i think the big thing is it's a commonality that it's a degenerative brain disease. So yeah. it affects the brain. And as you quite rightly mentioned, it affects communication, perception, um, processing uh, ability. And, and memory is just one of the aspects. So yeah. and certain forms of dementia tend to affect memory more so in the early stages. Um, others, it, it's further on in the progression of the, the illness that that occurs. Um, so obviously our, our focus is on the kind of the sensory side of things today. Um, I remember I was, I was teaching a course around dementia and it was one of the things that one of the ladies who, even though she'd got a lot of experience around dementia, she knew quite a lot. She was a, a, a lead ward sister in the dementia ward. She said that was some of the stuff that she'd never known about. She didn't realize um, that the, the difference in the way that they process the sensory information is, is quite different. Um, so when we're teaching this, I think both you and I kind of use the the Tipa Snow principle. So Tipa Snow is a, a neuropsychologist and an educator over in America who does some amazing stuff um, around uh, educating people and, and understanding uh, those living with dementia. Um, and she uses a great little tool, um, which we tend to use forwards. And I find it goes down really well with groups to kind of understand a little bit more about remembering how those sensory impacts. So 
we'll kind of go through that, I think, and, and kind of just expand on it a little bit and, and explore our knowledge on both of those. Uh, so she uses her hand um, as, as kind of there is five main senses. And, and in another podcast, we'll talk about and go a bit more in depth into some of the other senses. But there's five kind of what we call public senses, which is obviously visual, it's auditory, it's tactile, it's then your olfactory, which is your sense of smell, and then gustatory, which is your taste. Okay, so they're, they're the five, taste, uh, five senses that we'll kind of focus on in this podcast. Uh, we, can, we can touch on uh, ones like the vestibular and balance and stuff, because that's one that's sort of starting to be a bit more awareness raised in connection with dementia, isn't it? So basically each of her fingers represents those five public senses. And we call them public because everybody has access to them. So if I'm looking at your cup, you can see that cup, I can see that cup. So that that's something we both see we can access. But our perceptions of that may be slightly different, just from the different angle, but also different way our brains process that information. So one of the things that's worth, worth mentioning about I think when people uh, think about vision, for instance, we tend to think about eyesight. Um, And eyesight is just how well your eyes work. Most of your vision is actually all the stuff that happens behind your eyes. It's the stuff that's going on in the brain and and throughout our lives. So I use the example, if we use your mug as an example there. So if I look at your cup, I can kind of tell roughly, without even touching it, the texture of that cup. I can tell potentially what it might weigh by looking at it. Um, I can recognize the object itself and how you might use it and all those kind of factors. Do you know what's in it, though? I, I don't know what's in it, actually. No, that, that's, You'll never know. That's a surprise. <laughs> I'm not day drinking. <laughs> um, but it, from the, through experiences, things I've learned over time and, and the amount of cups that I've lifted and held and engaged with, that allows me to kind of know that information before I make physical contact, before I lift it, anything like that. So that that my eyesight see the cup, but there's loads of other kind of aspects of visual processing that are going on there. The fact that I can tell that that's a 3D object rather than just a picture of a cup that you're holding in front of you, for instance, is, is all part of that visual processing. So we'll start off with the visual, which which uh, Tipa Snow uses as her thumb uh, and does a little thumb up to kind of go, this is our visual processing aspect. Um, and, and one of the things, when, I think when we did the brain in like the third podcast, first podcast, we talked about the occipital part of the brain, the bit at the back of the head. Um, and it's one of the areas that's probably with most forms of dementia, not all, but it's one of the areas that tends to be affected last or, or slower than some of the other illnesses. Have I got that right as far as, yeah? Yeah, no, you have got it right. But like um, the, there is a form of dementia that primarily attacks the yeah. occipital lobe. So that one obviously can lead to blindness and stuff. So yeah. there is that form. Also, it, it is, it's not necessarily that it's last. It's just when it's, um, it doesn't usually, the, the, that part of the brain doesn't usually all get attacked. So, but even when it is in the, like a little bit, mm. that's where we see the big implications still. Yeah. So if you was to have, say, like a brain scan, the occipital lobe itself won't have received overly too much damage in most forms of dementia, but even with slight damage, we, we get the issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So vision for human beings is the most important of the senses. Um, We are dominantly a visual species. Um, If we were talking about dementia in rats, we'd probably be focusing on the kind of smell side of things. If we were talking about duck-billed platypuses, then we'd be talking about the electrosensitive and those sorts of things. So for human beings, um, about 66.6% of our brain is being utilized for processing visual information when our eyes are open. Mm. So there's a massive amount of... of, um, 
uh, brain processing that goes into visual processing. Um, I think it's something like 80% of all uh, sensory information coming through our external senses is made up of visual processing. So vision's a big one. And I think it's one of those that it does maintain typically, again, there's always exceptions, isn't there? We have to kind of work on that. But typically it tends to focus on, um, with most forms of dementia, the visual aspect remains, but it's impacted still. Okay. Um, this is why so the visual world is so important. So when we do when we talk about communication, it's so important that body language is still being considered, even if they're not necessarily understanding what we're saying, they're still potentially understanding what we're not saying through our body language and those sorts of things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, let's talk a few bits about vision. So from your point of view, what are the main aspects that vision tends to affect with those living with dementia? Depth perception is usually a big one and one of the one of the ones that we tend to see quite earlier on as well. So it's where people might be struggling to navigate staircases, yeah. might be struggling to even navigate just around their own home. So that could be things like rugs on the floor, patterned carpets, those sorts of things. Um perception as well. So the best way it got described to me by somebody is that we we could look outside the window now and when you look at clouds like we we often refer them to objects or shapes so Mm. you might see a dog i might see a dinosaur and those kinds of things that's a perception that's Mm -hmm. our eyes fitting kind of molding that shape or whatever that might be now perception during dementia was really difficult because yes we know me and you know it's perception but for them it can actually feel quite real Mm. so again it's that um sort of like a sunset on on a wall it looks like the wall's on fire for example it's shadowing on tiles in bathrooms one of the one of the difficult things that we tend to see and again relates over into memory a little bit as well so vision and memory cross paths quite a lot of each other is when people are looking in the mirror and they Mm. don't recognize the person in the mirror those sorts of things as well yeah um, so yeah, so depth perception, perception difficulties, but then it's also recognizing objects again in 3D. So often people might try and reach out and grab for the things that are not there. So obviously like the cup in front of me now, it could be I'm not picking that up as a 3D object and I'm just might be trying to grab it and reaching out and it's not even in the direction of where mm. the actual item is and those sorts of things. So yeah. It works a flip side to that as well, doesn't it? So I, I went to a, a particular home where they had a, a quiet room that apparently none of the the uh, residents this particular home ever spent any time in. Um, and, and I kind of guessed very quickly why, because there was a beautiful butterfly-patterned wallpaper all over it, um, and it looked very pretty. But straight away, if your understanding of depth is being affected, those butterflies may become real. And if somebody doesn't like things fluttering around their heads or doesn't like butterflies and moths, it, that may be quite an intimidating kind of room to go into. So that's that's one aspect, isn't it? Um, I think worth mentioning about um, our peripheral vision as well at this point. Yeah. Yeah. So peripheral vision, we know within dimensions damaged, but it can be a bit of a, of a difficult thing to be able to spot. Mm just through getting people to go to the optician. So peripheral vision, obviously we can see pretty much all around us. I don't know number-wise, but (laughs) it's not 360, I know that. (laughs) We're not owls and we haven't got eyes in the back of our head. So I think that's... No, we do technically have eyes in the back of our head, Andy. So anyway, (laughs) peripheral, we do. Do we? (laughs) We do. Expand on that. Uh, No, I'm going to go for it. Okay. (laughs) Set you up for another time. (laughs) Well, no, technically, your eyes are in the back of your head, aren't they? Oh, the occipital. Oh, okay, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah I see. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, peripheral vision. So we can see all around us. Now, 
this dramatically reduces, I think, around about the age of 75. So I'm not saying when we turn 75, that's it. There's just like that. It just completely withdraws. Yeah. But gradually over time, we will lose a bit of peripheral vision. It's just a natural part of aging. However, for a lot of people within dementia, we tend to see it reduced to what we, what I know it as tunnel vision. It's the best way to be able to describe it. So if people kind of at home or whoever's listening put like their, their hands over their eyes like this and like a pair of binoculars, it's kind of living in that for forever, for like for the rest of however. Yeah. Um, so with that tunnel vision, obviously it just makes things that a little bit more difficult. And it, you know, it's even people approaching us from the side or from the back and those kinds of things. What we use our peripheral vision for is for things like checking to cross the road. So it is things like safety and mm. all those different aspects so we can see who or what's coming. I think it's an animalistic thing as well, isn't it? So a lot of animals tend to have a lot of peripheral vision and that's yeah. for like survival and prey and all that kind of thing as well. So, I mean, the, the danger aspect is is a big part of it. That yeah, we use our peripheral vision to anticipate danger coming uh, and crossing roads, a great little analogy for that, isn't it? That we're kind of picking up on the externals, but then we're meant to also use our focal view. The... The peripheral side of things, and so our peripheral vision is not that great. It's actually quite grainy. It, it, I mean, it looks like it's always perfect, doesn't it? And this is a thing that what we, what our eyes are picking up is our brain fills in an awful lot of blanks. Uh, and peripheral vision is a, a prime example. So, for instance, most of our color vision is in our focal view. So actually, a lot of the stuff we're seeing in peripheral, our eyes pick up in black and white, and our brain fills in the color as a result of that. For instance, that that's one example. But the um, if you think of like a, a really grainy kind of old TV, realistically, that's what your peripheral vision is picking up. OK, so I, I get people to do it where they just kind of um, bring their hand in and they just bring wiggle their fingers on the corner of their peripheral vision on one side. You can't really see how many fingers are wiggling. You wouldn't be able to count them unless you looked towards them. But you can see there's movement. And, and that's what peripheral vision's for. You really, and you said there. One of the common things that people make a mistake in is is approaching people with living with dementia from the wrong angle. Mm-hmm. That if I see you coming from the side, that allows my brain to go, something's coming, and then I'll turn to look towards that movement to then be able to tell exactly what it is, who it is, how much I recognize it. So if I got my fingers in front of my face, I can kind of see exactly how many I've got and bring them out to the side and I can't count them anymore. So it's the same thing. If I see a person coming, I then look towards them to allow my brain to go, who are they? Do I know them? What are they to me? So approaching people living with dementia from the side can cause them to jump suddenly because they don't see you coming. Um, one of the common ones is, is let's say they're in a wheelchair and they're being pushed in a wheelchair and then the person who's pushing just kind of leans around and says hello or are you all right? And so this person in the wheelchair is kind of jumping going, where did you come from? Uh, and it's quite overwhelming. And if you imagine like most of us don't like being made to jump kind of once in a day, but you imagine that's happening over and over and over again, you, your nerves would be shot, wouldn't they? <laughs> I, th- I think, yeah, definitely. And I think one of the difficult things about this is that the person with dementia might not always know that their peripheral vision's being impacted or damaged as well so how are they able to sort of tell you know and a lot of behaviors around that kind of thing um 
it's it, it's it's from so you know again it's all oh, they're kicking off but actually they can't see something or they didn't know an extra carer was coming in to do personal care yeah. whatever it might be and these people are just appearing or things are and it's it can be really traumatic for them yeah. really upsetting so i think the binocular example is a, a really good thing for people to kind of think about so putting imagine putting two toilet rolls over tubes over your eyes for instance um minimizing that vision to as you described the tunnel vision uh, and suddenly then anything coming in towards your body in any way, so somebody's hand, um, even when we're thinking about kind of assisting somebody with their eating, for instance, if something suddenly pressing towards your face or um, most people's instinct isn't to just kind of immediately, let's say it is food, for instance, and it's being kind of pushed towards my mouth. I'm probably not just going to open my mouth and accept it. It's probably going to case I'm going to pull away or flinch away from it because I don't know what's going on or somebody reaching forward to touch my chest they may be doing it for the right reasons, like to undo buttons or to clean off some dirt on my top. Let's clean off some dirt on my top. But they're then, they're just seeing somebody's hand, somebody they don't know is coming towards them with their hand. Um, and, and that could, again, could cause them to feel defensive, to feel that as a threat. So I think the peripheral vision and understanding that's really significant around making sure, like communication, like engaging, that they can actually see our face to help with lip reading, to help with expressions. Um, or letting them see what we're about to do, showing them visually. So I think that's quite a good thing is talking about communication. If we go on to kind of the auditory, which is the next finger along. So the thumb was visual, thumbs up, kind of give you an idea of everything's good. Don't need to say it. You know what I mean? The next one, then auditory, the next finger along on the hand. So auditory is... Um, what we hear but the same thing it's it's the our ears do the kind of knowing which direction something's coming from it, it funnels that information into our brain but then it's our brain process that information understand the words that we're hearing for instance um, and we may have mentioned it on one of the other podcasts about the um, effect of dementia particularly on uh, receptive or understanding communication. Do you want to just ex expand on that a little bit, just as a bit of a reminder, if anything? Has somebody lost their hearing or is it they just don't understand what's being said to them? And a lot of the time, it is communication. So we tend to see a lot of carers start shouting, say, do you want your reading glasses or whatever it might be? And the person can hear them, but don't understand the language that's being used. Yeah. And a lot of day-to-day -day language we tend to lose. So on the left side of the brain, obviously dementia affects that lobe uh, that little bit more and we we lose things like formal speech production, comprehension, understanding. But then there's on the right-hand side of the brain, we tend to retain a lot more information around, around communication and what we're hearing. And it is things like um, arithmetic speech. So arithmetic being, hello, good morning, how are you? Yes, yeah. please, no, thank you. Sound rhythm, tapping, so beats and those kinds of things, lyrics of songs, swear words. So we know dementia impacts on communication in a different way on different sides of the brain. Yeah. Also on what we hear though as well. So there's different lots of different areas it affects right. around that. The the one you said there about the um uh picking recognizing the rhythm of speech, definitely. Um so I think most of us are quite good, even if we don't understand the language somebody's speaking or we can't hear them properly. Most of us are quite good at nodding in the right place, shaking our head in the right place and kind of engaging with somebody. Even if we don't understand, you can kind of, hmm, yeah, yeah. And, and you can act like you're kind of understanding. And I think many people with uh, living with dementia kind of still rely on that. They don't want to be perceived as, as stupid or, um, you know, not understanding. That can feel quite 
you know, self-conscious. So they might kind of pretend they understand by being able, and, and they're quite good at kind of covering the fact that they don't understand. With the, what I quite like about deeper snow kind of principle, that, that thumb being the visual, I can say that I'm good without saying anything. The auditory, she kind of does a kind of a wagging your finger. It's kind of like a lot of carers spend a lot of time talking because we're so used to using communication to kind of express ourselves, to get what we want, to ask questions and things like that. Um, and as you said there, it's difficult to know whether it's, it's hearing loss or whether it's um, auditory processing issues. So if I'm shouting and just saying a random word, but may make sense to me. So if I'm saying dressed, but they're hearing the word fudder and I just keep getting louder and saying it more assertively, then it doesn't make any more sense to them. It just feels like I'm telling them off. It feels like I'm shouting at them. And then again, that's going to cause a lot of distress. So the the auditory side, and this is where I'm, when we were talking about communication, we both kind of encourage. So how would you ask somebody through a window whether they'd like a drink? Well, you'd just do the visual sign to go, would you like a drink? So we can still help by using that visual information, making sure they can see our face, making sure we're approaching from the right direction, as well as using simple, clear, going slowly with our language, but not going into that elder speak. And I think we did quite a lot on communication, so we kind of won't spend, won't spend too long on there. Um, but so the auditory processing is also affected. What you can get as well, and I'm sure you've come across it, is sometimes there's a uh, they become hypersensitive to auditory information. So suddenly they're kind of hands over their ears and and kind of shouting. Why is everybody shouting? It's too loud in here, and and they become quite sensitive to noise as well. Have you come across that? Yeah, I come across it quite often. Yeah. So why is why are you shouting at me and those kinds of things? So one of this it's really common. So really hypersensitive or not being able to hear at all. And again, mm. I think the the general understanding of it is oh well they're losing the hearing now it's not always the case yeah um physically voices can be louder and can mm. be quite painful for that individual yeah obviously we get that in other conditions as well don't we so yeah yeah yeah, yeah we'll be talking um when we're going to a uh, doing another uh talk on on sensory and we'll be going more into what we call modulation, which is the ability for our brains to kind of modulate the information coming through, that we almost have a mixing desk in our head to kind of uh, turn down or turn up information as it comes through so we don't feel overwhelmed by it, which yeah. is why we don't, you know, we're not crying on the floor when we walk outside into bright sunshine. Our brain very quickly adapts and, and you know, the eyes obviously adapt to it as well. But um, so from a visual, we've then got the auditory. Uh, let's go into next as far as tactile is concerned. So... We we do engage with the world through our tactile sense. Um, there's many people I know that some more tactile than others. So I know some people, if they go around a clothes shop, they walk around, they have to feel everything. It's just more about the touch. They engage with things through that touch. And I think that's quite a, a primitive thing. Most how many of us uh, who are parents ever told children off like you don't you look with your eyes not with your hands but actually we do kind of look with our hands. You explore with your hands. Don't yeah, you know definitely. So there is this way we kind of, um, through picking up weight of the objects, from picking up texture, if we break down the tactile sense, and I'll, I'll talk about this a little bit more in another podcast maybe, um, you could actually break it down into multiple different senses. It, tactile isn't just one, but it's the information that we pick up through our skin, essentially. Uh, so vibration is a big part of that. So as I'm uh, running my finger over a table, if it's minimal vibration, it means it's smooth. If there's lots of vibration, it means it's rough. As a so kind of a simplified understanding related to tactile. 
one of the things is that with tactile, some individuals, because uh, with living with dementia, because they're losing some of their other senses, they might explore the world more through that tactile senses than we might typically typically say is is typical. Uh, typically say is typical. <laughs> my my say is typical. Um, so you will see, uh, and I'm sure you've seen many individuals living with dementia, kind of almost navigating the world through their fingertips. So they're walking along and they're touching the wall. Now, there could be a balance thing related to that as well, that they're feeling unbalanced, and we'll maybe touch on that briefly. Um, but it's also about kind of... they'll No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll feel over materials to kind of gauge what they are and try and understand them. Yeah. So... Um, one of the things I try and get over with a tactile sense, which I think is important, and this is where the next finger on the hand comes in as well. So we've got the thumb for the visual. We've got our first finger for the auditory, wagging our fingers, too much of that. Um, but also the third one is a tactile. And usually that third finger is for giving somebody the beard or a bird or yours. Um, if somebody touches you in a way that you're not expecting, straight away that's going to stimulate a kind of negative reaction. Okay, and we all have this personal space that we feel is is where we should and shouldn't allow strangers, particularly, to touch us inappropriately or to touch us at all. So a lot of us find it a little bit uncomfortable if a, a person who comes up and doesn't really know who puts their arm around you. It can feel quite invasive and quite uncomfortable. If we're then tying that in with the memory, we have to remember we may be strangers to this person from one moment to the next. So if we're touching them in ways that they don't feel is appropriate, we are going to get a negative and potentially survival response of kind of an aggression, aggressive lash out, for instance. Um, so I think you probably teach this as well a little bit. That when we're approaching somebody, especially if they're asleep, why would we ever touch them on their shoulders? Because straight away that's in way too close in their personal space. It's going to cause them to jump and it might cause them to lash out. But approaching somebody... In bed, for instance, it might be best to touch their feet as you're coming in and approaching towards the head because it made me feel less less distressing to them, as an example. Okay, great example. <laughs> I think the big thing is making sure you've got permission before you make physical contact and not assuming that permission before you make physical contact. Yeah, and it's always just letting them know. I think if there's anything through personal care, like I said, we've said it before on the podcast, that personal care is such an intimate thing. It's just letting people know where, what's coming next, and is that okay with you, and those yeah. those sorts of things. And hopefully that will build up that kind of trust. But touch is a really difficult one. Touching being tactile is really, really tough because some people, again, boundaries might not be there mm -hmm. uh, for whatever reasons within dementia. It could be part of their form of dementia yeah. for example so you know what they use how they used to touch so we had a issue with um a gen he would often touch some some carers bottoms yes um and i think for him it was a very normal thing because he'd regress back in in time kind of oh yeah everybody touches everybody's ones and it's all completely fine it probably was then yeah obviously it's not it's not okay now it's not not the done thing so so it touches a really complex one because we all like to be touched in different ways <laughs> <laughs> well yeah no that's 100 percent true yeah. and i think this is one of the things i try and get people to think about is that tactile communication is massively important yeah. you know it shouldn't be about not touching people but i think sometimes when we make physical contact are we making sure that they're on the same page as us uh, and and when we talk about orientation which we've done in other uh, in other kind of podcasts where are they when are they may be different from what we perceive so like with moving and handling this may be the 500th time i've done this with this person but it might be their first time for them yeah, so 
every time we need to be going i'm about to do this i'm about to do that just to let this person know yeah and but bring coming back to if i'm just telling them they may be nodding along thinking i want an easy life and you seem to want me to say yes i'm going to go along with it so they're picking up on our visual clues they're not understanding our auditory so can we make sure they understand can we show them what we're about to do on ourselves so I'm just going to touch your leg and kind of pointing towards the leg to help them visually understand what I'm about to do. I think kind of tying all the senses together, isn't it? Yeah, touch has got a lot to do with the pain management side of things as well. So yeah. um, I had a carer telling me the other day that she put talc on one of her clients on yeah. the front, completely fine, but then at the bottom of the back. And for some reason, this lady couldn't cope with it, mm. really upset by it. Like, don't, don't. And this was talc and powder. Yeah. So it's recognising that as well within dementia. It doesn't make sense. It, it is different on different, depending on what's yeah. going on. So this lady had a history of having a bad back, right. for example. Yeah, yeah. So, but that weight of the talc, mm-hmm. for whatever reason, was hurting her, but she was fine on the front. So I think it's really important that people understand that, that it is complex. Mm. It's not easy to understand, but listen to that person in, at the time yeah, and hopefully yeah. going through it with some empathy will be... Well, again, looking at the the modulation side of things, so um, there are different forms of tactile interaction. So there's soft touch and there's firm touch, so there's deep pressure, and then there's kind of light touch. And I always get people to think about, so light touch, if I just, if I stroked my hand very, very gently, kind of over the hairs of somebody's arm, for instance, it can very quickly get quite annoying. It can get kind of like, oh, that's that's starting to bug me, and and we want to scratch it or knock it away, because it's it's kind of like an insect crawling over you, essentially, especially if we're not expecting it. So sometimes soft touch can trigger quite an emotive reaction. For other people, they, they can't cope with the soft touch, but they can cope with the firm touch. For others, it's the other way around. So things like um, water trickling down the back or tolkien powder, as you mentioned there, might trigger an immediate kind of pain response. Also, the modulation you sometimes hear with dementia kind of, ow, you're hurting me. And, and the carer's going, oh, we're not touching you. But it might be actually their brain is telling them that even though you're very you're touching them very softly, the brain might be telling them that you're scratching down their arm and causing them pain. So, and if somebody was touching me and hurting me, and when I tried to indicate that it was hurting me, they didn't stop. I'm probably going to lash out a little bit. I'm probably going to get angry with it. So, it's understanding that, as you said, it's what, where can I touch a person that feels comfortable? How do they prefer to be touched, firm or soft? Obviously, we've got to be careful with with skin integrity and things like that, but. Sometimes soft touch isn't a nice sensation. Sometimes it is to be better to be a little bit firmer with that with that pressure. Um, so with the tactile as well, I think it's worth thinking about how our body communicates. So our tactiles with our skin and there's deep pressure and not. Um, so I always use the example like so your your bum and your brain are talking to each other right now. So at the moment, every now and again, one one cheek will go. Can you hear them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if the tactile, so one bum cheek is kind of going, oh, we're lacking oxygen over here. So telling the brain, can we move, please? So we can. And so that sensory information then transfers into a motory response and we move ourselves in position and then we'll move again. And most of us kind of move around in the chair to stay comfortable over a period of time. But imagine if suddenly that that's impacted and bum may tell the brain nothing. Suddenly that person sitting there for the whole day never moving and they're suffering really bad pressure sores. Um, 
You've got another person who, let's say, bum goes, oh, it doesn't feel right down here, something's going on, I feel uncomfortable, but the brain doesn't give the right information of how to respond, so this person ends up in really awkward positions or nearly falls out of the chair because the brain doesn't give them clear response strategies. Or even they don't understand that sensation, suddenly it becomes somebody just touched my bottom or there's something in the chair or something's digging in or anything like that, and it's actually just a bum cheek going to sleep. Is that being able to discriminate between the different senses as well that can kind of impact. So as I say, it, it's so important that we get consent before we're kind of touching, don't make assumptions um, and make sure they can see and understand exactly what you're about to do um, uh, around that. But sensory engagement can be quite positive, can't it, as well? So mm-hmm. some individual dementia, it's a good way of actual activity, just giving them different materials comfort. yeah comfort. you know we know that's a big massive part of the psychological needs and just yeah. ho- even holding someone's hand mm-hmm. doing other tactile stuff if the person likes it it's, it's things like hair stroking yeah whatever you know we know that's a really important factor in life and especially yeah. for those in care rooms that don't have loved ones and family members around them all the time to be mm. able to do that it's also a hug isn't it i know there's been some things that came out uh some some sensory uh objects not toys really but they're kind of um they're hug things where they go around the person's neck they put a little bit of pressure around the person's neck so the person feels like they're getting a hug their music their favorite songs and stuff at the same time so yeah and that seems to have quite a a beneficial kind of therapeutic um, aspect to them to help them feel connected connected in their own body sort of thing Okay, so uh, working through the senses then, we've gone visual we've done auditory we've done tactile the next one on the list is then olfactory now Olfactory is smell, um, and smell's quite an emotive sense. Uh, we tend to, most people sort of have certain smells in their life that trigger memories, as an example. Um, so most people have, I think you had somebody on a course the other day, didn't you? It's it kind of uh, a certain smell was quite an emotive thing for her, related yeah. to, yeah? I think yeah. it was um, looking at end-of-life care, wasn't it? I think that was it. That no, course? so basically her mum, um, no, we were doing dementia awareness, and yeah. she already told me that her mum had had vascular dementia and passed away not so long ago and we were talking about smells and I came at it like so you know we've all got our favourite smells and she just burst into tears and she went my mum yeah. she said my mum was my favourite smell and she says you know I've gone through all this course without crying but just this smell yeah. it, smells, it just proves how emotive it is yeah 100% 100% um, also I mean so supermarkets often use smell to control us a little bit. So it's quite a common thing where a lot of supermarkets or shops will put the smell of baking bread um, through the store because that smell of baking bread activates kind of our our hunger. So we feel more hungry when we smell that baking bread. And if we're hungry, we buy more. Um, so that's how easy it is to kind of trigger us psychologically. And there was a a care home that actually used that that premise. So they started putting the smell of bread through the care home towards lunchtime because straight away that seemed to help to orientate people. It's getting towards lunch, so they realised what part of the day it was. But it also seemed to activate their hunger a little bit and help them because, again, when we're looking at the senses, and we'll talk about more of this in the... Um, we're looking at full sensory processing. One of our senses is called interception. And interception is ability to feel hungry, uh, need the toilet. Um, our emotions are all the kind of our body telling us information internally. So with dementia, again, hunger may not be easily recognized. 
for the person themselves, but that smell may trigger them to feel hungry. It may help them to kind of recognize that. Um, and they found an increase in, in um, nutritional intake uh, from people by, by initiating that, that sense of smell. They also did coffee in the morning because that helped to orientate people to the fact that it was a morning and they seemed to be more engaged with breakfast and mealtime again. And I think they did hot chocolate in the evening, I think is the smell they went for to help people to know it's more nighttime and it's more that kind of comfort thing. And again, trigger their, their hunger a little bit. And they made some differences as far as... Um, uh, nutritional input for people living dementia, which is a which is a big part of getting calories into individuals with dementia to kind of maintain skin integrity and and activity and things like that. Um, but there is some smells that deteriorate a little bit um, uh, and are less recognised with uh, typically with dementia. You remember what those are? Yeah, do you? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. I just wanted to check before I passed it over to you. So there is a, there's some smells that actually trigger um, can be under-recognized with dementia. Mm -hmm. um, so do you want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so it's usually um, danger smells. So mm -hmm. it is things like gone-off food, it's things like excrement, urine, chemicals, gases, smoke, all all these kind of big trigger, these, these are dangerous smells and we need to action these. Yeah. yeah, they're the ones that we don't pick up as easily as what we maybe used to. 100%. And, and they're the ones that straight away to put, mate, vulnerability increased yeah. vulnerability significantly especially for people increased in their own homes yeah. yeah you know they they make an egg salad sandwich they put it on the side they then unfortunately the memory and the motivation goes they get distracted they've been there on the side for maybe even a, a few days for instance yeah. they go back it smells okay so then they eat it and give themselves food poisoning you know most of us do that smell test so um, I've read a couple of theories on it. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, they're just theories, so yeah. I want to make that clear. But one of the theories was is that the reason we don't pick up on those as as well as what we us like usually would. So, you know, for example, if me and you smelt like gas or if we smelt like chicken was gone off, we'd action it and we'd yeah. do something about it because we recognise that that's a bad smell and that's not a, a great thing. So there was a theory written, and it was by a professor, I think, from one of the universities in the UK, that the theory was is that usually we don't let smells get so bad mm. we usually counteract those before they get to a certain point so they think that it doesn't store or log as a big memory inside the brain when it gets to a certain point so for uh, okay. maybe a person with dementia you know to the point where the burning's gone past a really yeah. really burning smell or where the food's gone past a really bad smell that we don't usually have memory logs of those because we counteract them before they usually get there okay. i thought that was quite interesting it made mm -hmm. a little bit of sense as, as well yeah it makes um, a lot of sense but yeah just not being able to recognize and pick those sorts of things like you know when we've had obviously children and when we can smell for something in the napper we yeah. usually action that but yeah. if that hadn't been actioned for probably hours and hours mm. we don't usually recognize maybe the smell that came later on yeah yeah so, and that's one of the other smells you mentioned there that they seem to struggle to pick up on is is bodily uh, yeah. bodily fluids and, yeah. and excrement and things like that yeah so and this then this all ties together doesn't it as far as you know they can't feel that they're dirty in the same way or uncomfortable in the same way we might because of the tactile impact really they may not be able yeah. to smell it so suddenly a carer is coming over going well i can smell it and start touching inappropriately to check and that's where they're getting a smack because yeah. you have no right to touch me in that way because i'm misunderstanding context yeah. i know the other one is is chemicals as well which you yeah. have to be really careful with like the cleaning cart and those sorts of things because i, I remember there's quite a, a famous story that was 
It was 24 residents in a care home that ended up in hospital because somebody had put some leftover window cleaner into a, a cordial bottle. And then that had accidentally been served to the residents on a warm summer's day and it resulted in 24 of them with poisoning. Yeah. Um, whereas most of us have kind of sniffed that and go, that's not blackcurrant. You know, yeah. that, that's odd. But they didn't pick up on it. They drank it, made them very, it's very really poorly. Common. It's mm. really, really common. Yeah. So um, olfactory, there is some positives though. Aromatherapy, we know, for instance, can be quite beneficial and certain Definitely. smells yeah. help therapeutically and they can connect with reminiscence and stuff like that there's so. some really good stuff on the market nowadays so i know like there's uh, there's things like diffusers and mm. smells like um i think one of the smells is concrete so you know that sort okay. of i don't know about when you were younger and you played out yeah, um yeah. but it's that kind of wet pavement smell so where that oh, yeah, it's been okay. freshly raining it smells like tarmac or oh, concrete yeah, yeah. So there's also things like fresh washing. There's also things like cut, fresh cut grass and mm. those kind. So those ones are quite. I think when we smell fresh cut grass, for most of us, yeah. it takes us back to a memory. Yeah. When we smell the rain, for example, it might take us back to a memory. So that you yeah. can actually buy like things like air fresheners and diffusers now to help stimulate those memories. So things like baked bread. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a really nice thing. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Uh, either to emote memories or just and obviously there's typical ones like lavender and those sort of things. Yeah, that are therapeutic. That yeah, so like things like, like hand cream. So like lavender, for example, and that your favourite hand cream. What's your favourite smell? What's your favourite smell? Really related to a memory i don't know i don't know <laughs> i really struggle with that because I, I know that you, you use that as an activity and i don't think yeah. i ever would because i'm like i don't think i've got to say favorite smell no no this no. i can't really think of anything that triggers yeah my memories particularly i think i told powder a little bit yeah that, that's got some kind of positive memories i remember um Kind of my, my gran using a lot of talcum powder and stuff, so yeah. I do I do have that. And my mum, so that that kind of feels like quite a nurturing smell, definitely. I think yeah. maybe even from infancy. So yeah, maybe maybe talcum powder, talcum powder. I do. I've got a weird one though, which is I do quite like the smell of unleaded petrol. I don't. I do quite like it when I get yeah. it on my fingers accidentally. Then I kind of just I quite like it. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the nice smell, but I kind of like it. I don't know why. Again, it might just be memories yeah. from. My mum filling up at the uh, at the uh, petrol station and stuff mm. like that, and kind of sitting in the car and liking the smell. What about you? What's your favourite smell? Working men's club. <laughs> Working men's club. <laughs> it reminds <laughs> me. <laughs> It reminds me of when I was younger, we used to go down to the working men's club. Yeah. So it's a very distinctive so smell. So stale in the urine. <laughs> it's a very distinctive smell, but it smells like old furniture and things yeah, like that. Yeah, I like think I know what you mean. antique kind of smell to it. Yeah, mix of old beer, peanuts, <laughs> old furniture, smoke. Yeah, I can remember just having a panda pop and some and a packet of crisps and sitting. Yeah. Yeah, and that, I, I don't know why. It's just a, it's a very, it's not a great smell, but it's a nice smell with <laughs> memories. Oh, I don't think it's so many Yankee candles. <laughs> <laughs> I work in men's club, yeah. <laughs> or should I buy pumpkin seed? Or I, I just remember playing Skittles when I was younger and I just enjoyed the environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's fair enough, isn't it? Thanks. And that's it. The things that we might consider to be positive smells may not be positive smells for them. And it's finding something that's emotive for them, isn't it? Yeah. Definitely. So the last of the senses is the... Uh, is taste, um, also known as gustatory. So as far as taste is concerned, most people are fairly aware that we only have kind of five tastes. Um, and most taste actually comes from smell as much as anything. So obviously, if we talk about favourite smells, Around also 80%, food. Around 80%, isn't yeah. it? So yeah, roughly 80%, your taste, uh, it, it's actually smell that yeah. we taste. 
So you can do a funny experiment with a friend if you want. If you get them to put a peg on their nose so they can't smell or block their nose in some way and then blindfold them and get them to eat a raw onion, they won't be able to tell the difference between a raw onion and an apple. That without the texture is similar enough so that they can't tell the difference. You gave the game away there. <laughs> well, do it to a friend that hasn't listened to this podcast. Yeah. And, and only if you don't want them to be your friend anymore. Because as soon as you release the peg, obviously it's not a nice sensation when they realise that they've eaten an onion. Um, so the taste that we've got, I always kind of get mixed up, which I've said first and last. So we've got sweet, uh, salty, sour, bitter, and then what's called umami, uh, which comes from Japanese, but it means savoury, essentially. Um, and it's a bit difficult to kind of describe what umami is, but it's a kind of a savoury taste to meat. Um, if anybody knows what MSG is, which is a, uh, a chemical that's used in, in certain uh, foods. Takeaways. And takeaways and stuff, yeah. It's that kind of savoury uh, taste. So those are the five tastes uh, that make up everything that we taste, and then smell mixes in with the rest. Now, going back to, if we're thinking about diet, for instance, if somebody's smell is changing, their diet is probably going to change as well. And I think that could be really confusing for family, can't it, related to those that they, you know, living with dementia. You're going, oh, mum doesn't like that. Why are you giving her that? Well, mum's tastes may have changed a little bit from the smells. Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult one. And I think food and fluid intake is always a really, really tough one for, mm. for, for family members in particular because or they're not eating or they only want to eat things that are sugary or yeah. and those kinds of stuff. So a lot of drinks don't get drunk, for example. Mm. And I think it's a worry. Yeah. And they don't and a lot of people um don't understand why. Yeah, hundred mm. percent. So the usual question we tend to ask, I think, is so which of the tastes out of the five that we mentioned there do you think becomes the most prominent um for those live with dementia typically and most people say sweet because you've got people who say they're, they're leaving their main but eating the puddings they like their biscuits and their chocolates but they don't seem to engage in much else um or they used to have like no sugars in their coffee or tea and now they're suddenly wanting three four and so people think it's the sweet but actually it's it's the opposite it's bitter everything becomes more bitter and the sweet and salty particularly senses deteriorate a little bit so they need more sugar more sweet to get that same hit if you like more more bang for their buck um but yeah it's a bit like children so children all food tends to they pick up the bitter taste within food which is why a lot of children don't like vegetables and stuff like that and it impacts um but uh Bitter is a survival uh, kind of tool. It's one of the ones we need to know about because something that tastes bitter is usually like a berry or fruit is usually then poisonous. So it's quite a, a quite an important taste. But as you said, it people struggle to adapt to it, don't they? They're going, oh, I don't stop my mum just eating pudding. She needs a proper balanced diet. Well, the big thing for that age is not not really longevity. It's about that calorie intake and, and sugars is calorie. So it still aids, you know, the skin and, and skin integrity and those sorts of things. But um, why not? If I've reached the age of 90 and I just want to eat puddings, mm. why can't I just eat puddings? I, I understand that kind of we need to keep the well-being and health and stuff like that. But Yeah, but the only problem is with that is that it, it's not well-being and health if we're not eating anything at all. Absolutely. And I think, you know, as a culture and society, we're offended if people don't eat our food or, mm. you know, if there's a full plate of food going into the bin. Well, what a waste and it's awful. Yeah. It's a big part of dementia. This is what it is and yeah. this is how it's affecting them. There's so so many things you can do that's yeah. the thing that you can you know i'm not saying that we can get big meals into people but it's even changing so stop the big main meals 
going to small finger foods. Yeah, those absolutely. Kind of things. Yeah. So um, I would say kind of like increase the amount of kind of sweet vegetables and those sorts of things. So carrots, parsnips, sweet potatoes. If they like the sweet, then we might as well just introduce them into diet. Get them yeah. eating more fruit. It's it's sweet. So if they'll take it, they can eat it. We can always fortify foods as well. There's so much stuff out there to be able to add a, additional yeah. vitamins and minerals into the stuff that they do eat. Mm -hmm. um, so rather than bullying them to make them eat the things that they don't like, try and adapt the care to them. It's always that, that yeah. case, isn't it? We, we make it person-centered. Don't try and force them to engage in stuff. How can we adapt the care to them? Yeah. So even like cooking mints or something, just putting a little bit of sugar in the mints, not to make it sweet in a pudding, but just to sweeten it up a little bit, get rid of those bitter tastes isn't isn't a bad thing. You want yeah. four sugars in the tea? Then let them have four sugars in the tea. So uh, combining all those senses together then, obviously you've got the, the last two, we've got the, the smell and then the taste as well. So the kind of the hand represents all of those five senses. And you can combine those together to help us to understand a lot of the interactions. So they, let's say that... I feel something going on down there. I don't know what it is, so I'm going to explore what's going on down there. Um, so I might kind of open my trousers and kind of say, I can't see anything. It's dark. So I reach in and use my reach out with my tactile. <laughs> it's what I use to get people to kind of think about it and why some what they might perceive as a disgusting behavior is is you can understand it from a from a uh, from the point of view of understanding the senses. Mm. They find something in their underwear. They, re they come out and they've got something on their fingers. Mm. It looks like chocolate. They can't smell it. Well, just like infants do. So what, what senses have I got left to try and figure out what this stuff is? So they might then put it in their mouth. And it's... Smelling yes, really common as well, isn't it? Absolutely, because they're not getting the same feedback as far as the tactile to know what it is going on. So they're using an exploratory. Or oh, I've got some on my fingers. They either want rid of it or what is this stuff? Mm -hmm. So it's not because they're choosing to be disgusting. It's because they're trying to navigate the world and they're doing the best they can with what they've got left. Yeah, I often explain it as... Um, you know, I'm not saying people with dementia are like toddlers or children, but when we were younger, we explored. So I'm sure somebody had a worm in the mouth at some point. Yeah, or, absolutely. you know, you take chomped on grass or all those mm. kinds of things. They are just exploring because of, it's a case of, this is new. Absolutely, yeah. Any any kid, they get a pebble, they'll put it in their mouth, they'll put it in their ear, they'll put it up the nose. See, see what, <laughs> how does this thing work? Yeah. <laughs> see what That's I do it. with it. Yeah. And it's a similar thing, yeah, just trying to be, almost relearn, but unfortunately it doesn't, it doesn't maintain. No, so yeah. one of the things I think, just to finish us off on this podcast then, is where does a sensory thing come in? Well, we've mentioned it related to communication and those sorts of things. But I think the last kind of point to think about is making a dementia-friendly environment. Mm -hmm. If you understand the challenges that they have, particularly around visual, how much we use our visual processing for navigating the world around us. And you gave the example there, like the stairs. So I can't see them as 3D. So, Or even a slope. I may not be able to see that it's a slope anymore. Mm -hmm. That shadow suddenly becomes a step. Um, that mat suddenly looks like a hole in the ground rather than just being a mat. So it is very worthwhile going around and there's loads of tools available online and, and um, organizations that can do kind of um, audits for you where you they can come in and they can go around your environment, whether it be your home, if you've got a loved one, or whether it be the setting, uh, whether it be a care center, uh, you know, a care home itself, or whether it be a hospital or whatever, and do a bit of an audit as far as sensory is concerned. Is this place suitable if if we've got a lot of shadows, if we've got a lot of um, light bouncing off, like reflections? It, does that blue flooring that looks lovely and all lovely polished and looks really nice, but actually it looks like water. So now this individual is refusing to go on it because they don't want to get their shoes wet. 
Um, the red plate study is definitely worthwhile kind of being familiar with for anybody who's caring for those living with dementia, where they found that if you put a white plate on a white table with mashed potato on it, they won't be able to see it's even there. It all blends in together a little bit. So having a red plate allows them to kind of differentiate those colours and see the object more clearly, which is why a lot of um, uh, bathrooms for those living with dementia tend to have coloured toilet seats rather than white on white on white because it just becomes disappears into nothing. Have you got any specific examples that you think are worthwhile kind of drawing attention to? Um, it's even things like signage, especially in clinical places, but even with it in homes, like, um, you know, for, for people to sort of navigate around their own home. So it's okay having a wardrobe and then a picture of the wardrobe on the outside, but what's behind those doors? Mm, yeah. We really recommend like taking photos of what's inside something and then placing that on the outside so the person has an expectation yeah. of what's, what's going to be behind it. So even things like, kettles okay so yes they'll keep putting the plastic kettle on top of the stove or get rid of the plastic kettle put, get get another stove yeah. kettle so they're still able to you that like, have the skills of being able to safely make a cup of tea for example yeah definitely yeah? Yeah. so that you know all those things have kind of proven to work it's it's the little things that make a massive difference mm. like a really really big difference even painting door frames yeah the door frames is a big one so you know, with depth uh, depth perception, what we spoke about earlier, a lot of things just blend into one. So walls can blend into door frames and doors. Having distinctive colours, I'm not trying to make it look like Mr. Tumble's fun room or anything, <laughs> but it, having contrasting colours is a really positive thing. Yeah. Really yeah. positive. So, and again, you, you know, it's a bit of a tough one because changing things like carpets is expensive and yeah but you know even just if you if you are able to just put something plain or mm. something non-reflective so matte paints are really good things to do we get you can get specialist lights as well that are non-reflective light and there's just yeah. so much you can do yeah there's loads yeah having a good contrast between the color of the carpet plain carpets mm. uh with the contrast of the wall the door frames definitely one even when I'm just looking around this room now and I can sort of see the light switch, which is a, light, a white light switch on a white wall. So just putting a slight board around that, yeah. you know, it's like even just getting some tape and putting the, some tape around that light switch might allow a person living with dementia to turn the light on in their kitchen before they go in there, for instance. Help even yellow tape. tape on steps mm. or stairs is a really, it gives definition of where it kind of begins and where it ends. Yeah, perfect. And it's really cheap. Yeah. So, um, yeah, as, as far as to kind of finish the podcast, just uh, it's something that does need a definite more explana uh, exploration. Um, so if you are supporting those living with dementia, we highly recommend search out some of the auditing tools and, and really explore the environment from their perception rather than for your own. It's, it's the same as um, if I'm doing risk assessment within a kind of a pediatric setting, I get people to write the risk assessment from a kneeling position because suddenly that table corner didn't look dangerous, but now it's at eye height, it feels a little bit more dangerous. Well, that should be the same as a risk assessment, environmental assessment for those living with dementia. It's put yourself in, in their shoes and, and see the world through their eyes as best you possibly can with some of their, their difficulties. But uh, otherwise, I think that's uh, draws to a nice close. So thank you very much. Thank you. And we'll see you all next time. Cheers.